0: Welcome to Merrick's Experts, the podcast that provides analysis of current affairs in China. Good morning, and welcome to the podcast of the Mercator Institute for China Studies in Berlin. My name is John Lee, and I'm a senior analyst at Merrick's. Today's topic is the Second World War in China and the way in which it is remembered today, among the least known aspects of World War II, yet crucial in shaping the politics of post-war Asia into the present moment. Today, my guest is Professor Rana Mitter of Oxford University, one of the world's foremost historians of contemporary China, who's written extensively on this topic. Professor Mitter's latest book, China's Good War, looks at the reconstruction of China's historical memory of World War II and some implications for contemporary global politics and for China's domestic politics. Professor Mitter, welcome very much to the show.
1: John, it's a great pleasure to be on your podcast and also to be doing something with Merricks, which of course has a worldwide reputation in terms of rigorous studies of contemporary China. So it's a great pleasure.
0: Thank you very much. Um Now, perhaps to begin with, for those who are unfamiliar with the course of events, and particularly since, as your book goes into great detail on China's experience of World War II, started rather earlier than the date we normally associate with that conflict. Could you please give us a quick rundown of the relevant events?
1: Absolutely. This is something I have to do on occasion because, in a sense, for those of us listening in the Western world, World War II is something that most of us think we're pretty familiar with in one way or another, particularly if we live in Europe. And yet the Chinese aspect of it is perhaps the least familiar theatre of that entire conflict. And so it's perhaps best to summarise it not by trying to give a chronology, but rather giving a few key facts, which I think give the scale and extent of that conflict on the Chinese side some sort of framework. So first of all, it's worth remembering that China fought longer than any other allied power during the Second World War. Its war began in the summer of 1937, two years before the war began in Europe. And of course, four and a half years before the Americans and British entered the Asian war at Pearl Harbor. In addition, the Chinese casualties during that that eight year war were extraordinarily high, over 10 million, possibly even as high as 14 million, according to some uh, calculations, involving of course combat deaths but also civilian deaths deaths from disease famine starvation and a variety of other causes that would have been far less likely if the war hadn't taken place the third figure i'll give you is the scale of the refugee crisis within china 80 to 100 million chinese became refugees in their own country during those years having to up the uh, to, to, to pull up their uh, their roots and move to other parts of their own country for years on end unsure when they would return home. And the final number, which perhaps gives some idea of the importance of this is that by no means incidentally, for those four and a half years until the Western world entered the war against Japan at Pearl Harbor in the uh, winter of 1941, Chinese troops, both nationalist Guomindang troops and Chinese communist troops held down over half a million Japanese troops who had invaded China under their government's expectation, the war with China would essentially result in a Japanese victory within just a few months. More than four years later, they were still there. And those of us who know global, global World War II will be aware that actually had that not happened, had the Chinese not resisted, then the part of the war that we're more familiar with, its connection with the Pacific war when the Americans come in, and of course, along with the British, make a huge, huge contribution to the ultimate victory in World War II, That, of course, is more familiar, but without the Chinese contribution in that first period, we wouldn't have got to that Pearl Harbor situation. So that is why I think that it's worth knowing about and worth thinking about the significance of the Chinese theatre of that war, which generally has faded from public memory.
0: Indeed, it's an unfamiliar story for most Westerners. And of course, as you detail in the book, unlike most other countries involved in World War II, China itself did not develop a clear post-war collective memory and narrative of what the war meant for contemporary society. Instead, China's experience of World War II has been reconstructed over the decades as political imperatives have changed. I wonder if you could, again, perhaps give our audience a brief overview of what's happened.
1: Absolutely. and. I think it's worth making clear that when we talk about the collective memory of World War II and the way that it shapes contemporary Chinese political and social culture, this is something that is very much of the present moment. This is not purely a historical question. It's very much about the way that China thinks about itself today. And what makes that distinctive is that today, in ways that I think, John, you and I will go on to discuss, it's possible to spot aspects of China's collective sense of World War II every aspect of public life from movies to social media communities to official museums and plenty of others too. And yet that wasn't always the case and it certainly wasn't the case in the first quarter of a century of the People's Republic of China when Mao Zedong, uh, Chairman Mao, was in charge. And the reason for that in a sense is quite simple. As I mentioned in my earlier reply it was in fact the Guomindang, the Chiang Kai-shek nationalists, who bore the brunt of the set battles during World War II against the Japanese between 1937 and 45. The communists were very important, not least in terms of the guerrilla warfare, which would make them globally famous, but they were not, as the official Chinese communist version of history had it for a long time, the leading party who played a role to the exclusion of everyone else. But under Mao, of course, he Mao had defeated the nationalists, not in the Japanese war, of course, but the civil war, which followed uh, coming to victory in 1949. And after he had taken over the whole country, there was no way that he was going to allow the public culture of the China that he ruled to say anything positive about the Kuomintang, about the nationalists, even if uh, it involved having to exclude their major contribution to the victory in World War II. So essentially, that part of the story was cut out of the narrative in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s. It began to change in a big way in the 1980s. And I argue in the book, it's been going on changing and becoming more and more relevant in the 40 years since then. Why the change? Well, briefly, I'd say there are three reasons. Number one, very pragmatic. That was the point in the 1980s when the mainland thought that they would start to try some serious discussion of reunification with Taiwan. And they thought that just being a bit more positive about the war record against Japan of the nationalists who are now on Taiwan, of course, uh, might be positive. The second reason was that they were becoming increasingly nervous about Japan's desire to have a greater role in international society and thought that reminding them of the war crimes committed in wartime China would be a useful way to try and push back against them. But the third, and I would argue, the single most important element of the change in official memory, the new stress on World War II, was a desire to create a new kind of nationalism in China, moving away from the, I think by then, pretty discredited class struggle, Marxist, Maoist influence, class struggle, nationalism that you saw in the 1960s and and 70s, which of course have brought China to its knees in terms of internal turmoil, and instead, look for a story that had various elements in it. All Chinese, regardless of party, nationalists, communist, fighting together against an external enemy, which of course had invaded China despite the desire of China to stay at peace. So it wasn't China's fault, but it fought back. And then all of that coming together to create a story that would also help China fit into the world. And of course, if there's one global story that continued to inspire people around the world decades and decades after it had happened, it was World War II. So for all those reasons, from the 1980s up to the present day, having seen the World War II collective memory mostly absent, except in very limited ways, from Mao's China, we now see it infiltrating, embedded in almost every aspect of public life in China to this very day.
0: Yes, of course. And I wonder if you might be able to introduce our audience to some of uh, the fascinating examples of public culture and in particular media representations on the war that have emerged over the last couple of decades in China just to give them some uh, I suppose understanding of how visceral an issue this has now become for the Chinese. Absolutely
1: because I realize that if one talks in the abstract just about the way in which uh, World War II is visible in public culture in China it doesn't make much sense without examples. So let me state let me start you know right now in the uh, in the year that we're, we're we're here 2020 you know it's been the year of the pandemic covid of course but through that lens even just in the last few months you can see all sorts of ways in which world war ii has become very obvious in the public culture of xi jinping's china first of all at the beginning of the year as we are all bitterly aware the covid pandemic was spreading around the world and of course china was the first country where the authorities had to deal with it So with this terrifying new disease in prospect, what was the metaphor? What was the analogy that the Chinese government under Xi Jinping used to talk about the virus? Well, they used the phrase people's war. In other words, exactly the same phrase as Mao had used about fighting the Japanese back in the 1930s. In those days, Mao was fighting a people's war against the Japanese and in 2020, Xi Jinping's China said it was fighting a people's war against the virus and even using the same sort of idea of Kang, resistance to uh, the um, uh, the terrible invader. So, you know, one metaphor was, was, was that metaphor was very powerful at that stage. Then fast forward to the summer of this uh, this year. What was the single biggest selling box office movie anywhere in the world this year? Well, the answer is a Chinese film because uh, China is the only country where movie theaters, where cinemas have been open in a big way, I think, in the world this year. But the movie that hit box office records, with I think over 300 million US dollars worth of tickets sold, was a movie called Ba bai, the 800, which is a highly dramatic, uh, you know, big IMAX blockbuster movie style account of the last stand of a few hundred nationalist Chinese soldiers uh, in 1937 at a warehouse in Shanghai, pushing back, uh, in their last stand against the, the Japanese. And this movie has been you know, a huge success, even though it deals, as I've said, with that previously taboo idea of the Chinese nationalists rather than the communists playing a brave uh, role in, uh, uh, in the war against Japan. It was complicated by the fact that the film had actually supposed to be, re- it was supposed to be released one year previously uh, in 2019, but was then taken very hastily off the books because um, various high up people in the Chinese Communist Party objected to the very favorable portrayal of the nationalist soldiers. But a year later, with the 75th anniversary of the VJ Day, the victory over Japan being commemorated in uh, China, the moment was was felt to be right. And one last example, again, because it's such a, an important one for China today, the best or the, the, the most widely watched television show in China this year is a show called Autumn Cicada a spy thriller set in the months around Pearl Harbor and the occupation of Hong Kong by the Japanese in late 1941. But this movie is not just a historical drama. It's also a metaphor about the present day, because, of course, it's set in Hong Kong. And most of its heroes are fantastically good looking young men and women who are playing the lead roles, all of whom are fervent members of the Chinese Communist Party. And of course, this is sending a message to the viewers that in those days, young Hong Kong people were properly patriotic, unlike the protesters and the supposedly ungrateful protesters of the the present day in, in, in Hong Kong. So even there, World War II can be used by today's Communist Party to send a very powerful metaphor about the present day and use China's very rich and, um, you know, well populated media um, environment to send out that message. But the thing that all these three things have in common, the movie, the TV show, the antivirus metaphor, is that they turned to World War Two. It still has this huge power in the minds of, uh, of, the, of in the collective memory that China has of those events.
0: Indeed, and we will come back to the international residences later in this podcast, and in particular to the language of war from the Maoist years and from the 1930s and the struggle with Japan and the Civil War. But um, I wonder if we might segue slightly to your accounts of how private actors have, in parallel with this changing official narrative in China, appropriated lesser known aspects of the diverse experience of World War II as political spaces have opened up and closed in China over the years. Um, In particular, the examples that you give of local museum entrepreneurs, um, and perhaps after that, um, moving on to uh, the way in which different regional experiences, such as those of Chongqing versus Yan'an, have received new forms of commemoration and of attention in contemporary. Absolutely,
1: John, I think that's a really important element of what I want to argue in the in the book, because the mistake would be to think that all of this is about top down propaganda, a bunch of people in Beijing basically thinking about how to pay for movies or museums or newspaper articles that push the line from Beijing. And I think one of the most interesting and important elements of the development of this collective memory of World War Two in China over the past 40 years, is how much is bottom up? how much is actually changed or adapted to their own uses by ordinary people in all sorts of different ways. So let me give a couple of brief examples along the lines that you've you indicated there in your question. First of all, one of the really interesting phenomena is of private museums in various parts of China that commemorate the wartime experience. So that's one of the most notable is actually part of a complex of museums set up by a a now quite famous entrepreneur called uh, Fan Zhenchuan who um, has a a set of museums, about eight or nine of them, actually more than about 10 now, in fact, outside the city of Chengdu in his own sort of compound. And they're quite daring in many ways. He's a man who likes to to push at the the edge of what's permitted, I think. So there's a museum of the Cultural Revolution, which is very, very rare, particularly in the private sector in uh, in China. But he also has a very interesting looking museum of the um, uh, experience of that region where the museum is located, Sichuan province, down in the Southwest during World War II. And his argument basically, and the reason that he's put these these items on display in the museum is that in the Southwest, because it was the nationalist area of control during the war, not a communist area, that its history was always kind of downplayed. It was ignored during that uh, period of Mao's rule in particular, and that now the region has to make up in lost time to commemorate and celebrate its own resistance to the Japanese during that uh, that period. And I would also say that something, one other example that gives, I think, an indication of why so many really ordinary people found this such an important thing to be able to reclaim their elements of popular memory of that period. So there's a wonderful project called uh, Chidaho Fang, uh, Going to the Interior of the Country, which is really a collection of oral histories compiled by some wonderful historians, including uh, Su Sujuliang, who's based in... Um, Shanghai, um, which were basically stories taken from people aged in their you know, mostly 70s, 80s, 90s, uh, about 15 years or so ago, um, who had all been part of that huge exodus downriver, down the Yangtze River, from eastern China, from Nanjing, Shanghai, uh, those cities, up to Chongqing, the temporary wartime capital of China during the years of the war. And the thing was, all these people that had had these memories running around in their families of, you know, being suffering these constant air raids, which was a very frequent and terrifying experience in wartime Chongqing, of cold, of lack of food, of having to hide in air raid shelters. You know, all these things were memories carried on in the family, but were hardly ever talked about in public because the city itself had been a nationalist and not a communist area of control. So when things opened up, when there was more space granted by the party for people to talk about their own personal histories, these people made up for lost time and in both a television series and the book that um, I've mentioned of the oral histories, all of these stories are recorded. And there's one particular quote, if I may give it to just finish the thought that I think really summarizes why this was so important to people. One person told one of the interviewers from the university, we're old people. We don't mind dying. You know, That's that's part of what comes to you in life. But we're very, very frightened about our stories being hidden and fading away without anyone ever having heard them. And that was why for them it was so important to get these oral histories out in some published public form just before they slipped out of living memory. So as I say, this collective memory of World War II, of course it's about what the Chinese Communist Party wants to tell the world, and that's a large part of the book, but a very large part is also about ordinary Chinese people saying, well, we share some parts of that, but we have our own views as well. And sometimes those will not be the same view as the one that comes top-down from the Chinese state.
0: Indeed, and having personally, may I add, been to a number of public, including the three official war remembrance museums that you detail in the book myself, as well as a range of the private ones, I can certainly confirm that there is a fascinating range of historical memory in China if you're able to dig below the surface. This is Merrick's Experts. I am John Lee, senior analyst at the MacArthur Institute for China Studies and speaking with Professor Rana Mitter of Oxford on his new book, China's Good War, which tells the story of the construction and reconstruction of the memory of World War II in China and its implications for the present day. We have been talking, Professor Mitter, about China's domestic politics and culture. I would like now to move on to what for many listeners, I suspect may be the more pointed uh, relevance of this phenomenon, which is contemporary international politics. And in particular, the way in which the history of the Cairo and Potsdam conferences and the Transition from World War II directly into the China, Chinese Civil War and its messy aftermath has shaped contemporary Asia. Um, In particular, China's territorial disputes with its neighbours, and also its diplomacy regarding the nature of the current international order and
1: China's place within it. Absolutely, John. And of course, you know, for many of us from the outside world who are trying to understand how China is rising, where it's going, and where there are opportunities and where there are vulnerabilities. I think that this question of how it's engaging with its own World War II history and using that to shape contemporary international relations is a really important element of, uh, of the mixture. So let me sort of specify where I see this happening. One example actually was given to me earlier this year in uh, the country that you're sitting now, I think, in, in, in Germany, because uh, pretty much the last trip I was able to make out of the UK before the lockdown earlier this year was to the, uh, Munich Security Conference, uh, and Amongst all the speeches on geopolitics, which always go on there, uh, I got to hear, uh, Foreign Minister of China, Wang Yi, who I think was making a pretty pointed set of comments to, uh, then Defense Secretary Mark Esper. As we speak here on the podcast, uh, Secretary Esper was dismissed by President Trump, uh, a few days ago. So he, he was no, he's no longer in office, but he was at that point in, and in Munich. And what Minister Wang Yi said in his comments, which were not friendly comments towards the U.S., it must be said, was to say, you and the Western world should not forget that we in China were the first signatories to the United Nations Charter in San Francisco in 1945. In other words, and this is one of the points that I, I make at some length in, in, in the book, because I do think it is important. China has moved in large part from what it used to say under Mao, which is that they that China was excluded from the international order and it would seek to create its own alternative order, first with the Soviets, and then on its own in terms of being a third world leader, that has almost entirely reversed. These days, China wants to portray itself as being the true, certainly a co-founder, and these days, certainly under President Trump, the true um, inheritor of the 1945 settlement, so Dumbarton, Oaks, the United Nations, Bretton Woods and the international economic system, and the whole UN structure. That is now something that China is pleased to say, in a sense, using Dean Acheson's phrase, that it was present at the creation. Now, for those who know Chinese history, there is a rather tricky element in this version of history, which is, of course, that the vast majority of what was being done in that period was being done by the Kuomintang, the nationalist party, it was Chiang Kai-shek's China that was invited to San Francisco, not the CCP, the Chinese Communist Party. Although we should say that there was actually one communist delegate in San Francisco, that was uh, Dong Biwu, who became a pretty senior CCP figure. So essentially, what China's had to do is to sort of embrace that 1945 war victory of the nationalist government and make it part of the wider Chinese story, including the uh, the, the the communists. But the, although it involves a certain amount of uh, historical uh, sleight of hand, as you might say, to uh, to do that, it's also the case that it can be politically fruitful. So one example of, of, of that from seven years ago, in November 2013, there was a great deal of play in the Chinese media about the 70th anniversary of a relatively obscure, not totally obscure, but relatively obscure historical event: the Cairo Conference of November 2013, where Chiang Kai-shek. Franklin D. Roosevelt and Winston Churchill came together in the Egyptian capital to discuss not only uh, strategy for the war in Asia, but also, this is in 1943, I should say, but also um, the um, idea of what would happen in Asia after Japan had been defeated, uh, which of course would happen in two years uh, two years later. And the communique, the statement made at the end of that meeting signed off by Roosevelt, Churchill and Chung basically put in a phrasing that islands which were under the control of Japan, apart from the four main home islands and certain minor islands, would essentially be redistributed by the allied powers. Now, they said nothing specific about the controversial islands known as the Jiaoyu to the Chinese or the Senkaku to the the Japanese, those islands sitting halfway between China and Japan in the East China Sea. But China today has been very, very keen to argue that the Cairo communique is actually part of the evidence along with the Potsdam Declaration uh, a little later uh, in in 1945 that gives China the rights over those islands to the present day. Now clearly this is a position that is not shared by many people outside China but again it goes back to the point that by accepting that the four years from 1945 to 49, the immediate post-war years should be counted as part of China's wider history and should not be excluded by the CCP just because they were not in charge at that time. It gives a much wider canvas for today's China to argue that it was an inheritor of the post-war order. And that gives it certain rights and certain um, uh, privileges in the order that's being constructed uh, today. So for that for that side of things, history really matters.
0: And of course, one consequence which you go into in the book is or This is a consequence of the lack of a shared understanding of the result of World War II between the wartime allies of China, in particular the United States, and the official memory now is propagated in the PRC. One aspect I'd like to go into here is the way in which this has allowed contemporary China's leaders to position the United States as in a long-term hostile struggle with China. And we've, of course, seen more examples of this um, in official language from China recently in Xi Jinping's speech, for example, on the anniversary of the Korean War, Um, and in the language um, taken straight from the Maoist doctrine of guerrilla warfare that developed, of course, during the struggle against Japan of protracted war to describe the technological and economic contest, as well as the military one with the United States going forwards. I wonder if you might be able to comment on that.
1: That's absolutely right, uh, John. I mean, I would say that there are a variety of analogies that are being used by the uh, Chinese uh, authorities to make statements about their present day placement in international society. So if, as we've just been saying, one element of that is meant to look more cooperative and by commemorating the 1945 declaration uh, in the United, Na- uh, the signing of the United Nations Charter, uh, China is making a case that it is a true cooperative actor in international society, the inheritor of 1945. Well, as you say, the other arm of that policy is to go much more to the confrontational analogies and use them to explain uh, the contemporary rivalry with the United States. So you pointed out that the, qi jiu jian, the pr- protracted war one of Mao's classic essays about drawing out warfare over a long time and using sort of pinpricks and different methods at different times to try and get the result is very much on the table as an example of how any kind of conflict, whether it's literal or metaphorical, with the United States might be won. Uh, but I think actually one of the most interesting uses of this uh, use of analogy in the last few months and weeks actually relates not to so much to the war against Japan, but the Korean War which also is uh, commemorating an anniversary this year. It's 70 years since the outbreak of the Korean War in June, in fact, of 1950. And if you've been keeping an eye on Chinese media, you'll see that there's been plenty of speeches and popular culture documentaries and dramas and so forth on that Korean War anniversary. Well, why is that so important? Well, if you think that in Chinese, the war is not generally known as the Korean War. It is known as the Kangmei the resistance to America war. And in that context, a context where the trade war is happening, where President Trump's administration has been, you know, very, very um, loud in its condemnation of China. All of these are being used now, I think, to try and whip up a, a spirit of resentment against the US within China itself. But as ever, using that historical analogy of the Korean War, a time when China had to rely on its own resources, had to turn inward to strengthen itself, had to produce self-reliance. These are messages that are now being sent out in a big way. And I think one of the reasons they use the the war analogy is that the China of today, in a sense, is so different from that period. You know, it's a consumerist society. uh, It's economically much more powerful. But actually, one wonders how much China's, you know, younger generations today really respond to that idea of becoming the kind of new soldiers of the Korean War in a way that they would have done in that much more um uh, class struggle riven time uh, that marked the, the early 1950s.
0: And of course, one also wonders how the Koreans react to this, which brings us to the next fascinating um, analogy or metaphor that you use in your book of circuits of memory. Now, it's quite clear, I think, from what you've described so far, that there is not such a shared circuit of memory about what World War II means. Uh, between the Western world, generally speaking, and China. But what is of great interest in contemporary politics in Asia is the potential for China's active diplomacy in this area to construct such a shared memory circuit with other Asian countries. And here, of course, um, Japan is excluded. But apart from the South Koreans, um, the experience of Japanese imperialism in Southeast Asia is something which obviously Chinese official propaganda now tries to leverage. So I wonder, again, in the context of an emerging great power struggle, as it's perceived in this region, how much utility you see in this from the viewpoint
1: of Chinese foreign policy. Uh, Yes, John, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, this term which I, I, I put in the book, circuits of memory, just to explain very briefly what I mean by that term is that when we think about collective memory of any event, but certainly of the Second World War, although it was a global war, the shared memory is not global. I think those of us living in Western Europe have a shared circuit, as I would call it, of collective memory. You know, in Britain, in France, in Germany, whether Axis or Allied powers uh, back in the 1940s, we all have, I think, a pretty shared interpretation of this as a war when, you know, Nazism menaced Europe. Uh, the Allied powers did come together eventually, fought back against it, destroyed Nazism and, um, solidified Europe for, for, for democratic, um, uh, rule afterwards. Now, there's lots of flaws and um, differences you could put in in that, that explanation. But broadly speaking, I think it's a collective memory of the meaning of the war, which is widely recognized. No such shared collective circuit of memory exists in Asia for a variety of reasons. But the main one is that the region splits up politically so early on, you know, really by the late 1940s in a way that was not true of Western Europe. Obviously, Western U- East were divided in Europe, but within Western Europe, there was partly because of the Marshall Plan and shared American um, sponsorship, uh, a shared circuit, you might say. So the question for the Chinese these days in pushing forward this idea about themselves as inheritors of 1945, as moral victors of World War II for having fought so long against the Japanese, is how effective can it now be in terms of shaping a narrative around themselves? And I think the short answer is that it's going to be a hard stretch, but the Chinese are making it harder for themselves than they have to. I mean, first of all, reviving these sorts of memories when there have been so many different separate circuits of memory in Asia for decades is much harder to do in the 2010s or 2020s than it would have been in the 1950s. But you know, in that intervening period, Japan, Southeast Asia, you know, these countries went essentially separate ways, and certainly they were separate from China in terms of any kind of shared collective memory. Um, in the present day, I think it's fair to say that the narrative is also quite a, a hard one to sell to other countries for two, two reasons, really. The first one is that although you can find many hypocrisies with it, there's still something very powerful about that Western circuit of memory, which is about World War II as a war for democracy. And the one thing that the Chinese Communist Party neither claim nor would be able to claim is that uh, China fought against the Japanese to try and uh, promote at least liberal democracy. At the very best you could say they were trying to bring order to the, the region, which perhaps ultimately uh, you could say that they, uh, they did. And because present day China is very far from a democracy, the moral freight of a message saying that China fought 70 years ago, 75 years ago, to make the world safe for consumerist authoritarianism is not in and of itself a very um, weighty kind of, of message. So that's one of the problems. The other one is actually more pragmatic, which is that Chinese diplomacy can be very skilled on occasion, as the recent signing of the RCEP um, uh, trade agreement uh, shows just a few days ago. But on the other hand, it is... Tremendously clumsy on many other occasions too. South Korea is a country where you could think that because both both China and South Korea have a lot of issues with the Japanese, that they could form some sort of uh, uh, of ability to to share um, uh, uh, a kind of moral narrative about war crimes committed, say, against you know forced sex uh, sex workers, uh, the so called comfort women, these sorts of issues. But then you know every time that China actually manages to get some kind of commonality on that story. It then suddenly turns against South Korea and, for instance, you know, orders a boycott of South Korean companies because um, South Korea was willing to take uh, uh, American missile defense uh, under the THAAD system or, you know, some other kind of diplomatic gaffe. So in that sense, I think that part of the barrier in terms of that sense of wider moral narrative being created is China's own inability to turn its diplomacy outwards in a way that looks towards creating Favorable narratives over the long term and inevitably always getting caught up in the short term by this very confrontational diplomacy, which looks great at home on social media, makes China, you know, obviously sound very loud in the, in the world, but doesn't actually do very much to create that kind of sense of genuinely shared, um, shared endeavor. Chinese diplomacy, in other words, moves from, from shrill to saccharine and then back to shrill very, very quickly, far too often.
0: I think that's quite a graphic but very apposite metaphor there of a pendulum with Chinese diplomacy. But of course, as you pointed out, um, the underlying problem is that, in fact, there is no shared experience um, of the post-war journey for many of these countries in Asia. Again, Japan being a special case, but certainly um, China's unique story and its transition from the imperial system into the modern system of nation-states is quite a distinct experience from that of its neighbors. Um, I wonder if you might be able to comment on how the unresolved questions about international order as a legacy of World War II fit into the larger story of China's journey from a multi-national empire into a Westphalian nation-state. Um, and. I have in mind here an op-ed which I believe you wrote recently for the South China Morning Post, comparing it to India's post-colonial experience, for example.
1: Yes, that, thanks for that, John. Uh, and again, uh, uh, that and other uh, op-eds are available on the South China Morning Post uh, webpage for those who'd like to to check them out in, in more detail. Well, in the India-China comparison, I was actually just picking up on on a slightly odd historical anomaly, but one that I do think is real, which is that the, the collective memory of imperialism and the experience of Western imperialism, in particular, in both countries, has ended up with a rather different sort of result. In India, I mean, goodness knows there are dozens of things which are creating turbulence and turmoil in India, including you know the rise of Hindu nationalism, uh, the continuing anger about uh, relationship in the region with Pakistan, uh, of course, the, the 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 conflict with China is one obvious one over the summer. The one thing <laughs> that doesn't seem to me to be dominant is present, but it's not dominant in the way that India thinks about itself today, 70 years on, is resentment at Britain and British imperialism, which is quite odd in some ways, considering that Britain, you know, ruled the place for more than 200 years uh, and often in very, very brutal ways. I was just reading a book um, this last weekend about the Amritsar massacre of 1919, remembering quite what a horrific event that, uh, that was with, you know, hundreds and hundreds of deaths in uh, uh, in, in that uh, in that end, so it 's not as if there isn 't material for resentment, but for whatever reason, India seemed to sort of move on and actually develop a rather warm, if in some way slightly ironic relationship with its former colonial masters that hasn 't been the case with China I think although Japanese imperialism clearly sort of triggers the most um, virulent uh, language in, in, in China. I think it's fair to say that there is still a great deal of resentment, You know, the Opium Wars and other aspects of British and French imperialism in the country still have that kind of valency. And I did suggest that perhaps moving on past that might be an important thing for a country which is now putting itself forward as a, a global power in a wider sense. But I think I'd also see that in a slightly different context. So, I mean, since you mentioned that there's a variety of factors, um, John, let me just briefly say, aside from history, which we've obviously been concentrating on in this conversation, and as a historian, I love to to talk about that. But aside from the memory of war and the impact of imperialism, it's worth remembering, I think, that China's sense of itself in the present day draws on at least two or three other longstanding threads. I mean, the longer standing thread is that even today, understanding some of those older philosophical traditions, Confucianism, Legalism, Taoism, I think is important in understanding how, in a modernized form, they inform Chinese mindsets in terms of how they think, not in some simplistic way that people read the you know the Art of War of Sun Tzu and then kind of just follow it word for word, but in the way that we always know that Judeo-Christian norms shape large parts of of Europe. So Confucian norms still have an immense importance in 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 China. Then you know, in a sense, I'm always surprised that people don't spend more time looking at what the Chinese Communist Party says about itself. The clue is in the name; it's a Communist Party, Marxism-Leninism-Maoism. And the philosophical ideas, many of which, of course, are originally Hegelian, which emerged from that, ideas of contradiction, ideas of struggle. These do, I think, really say something important about the way that China thinks about itself in the wider world. And the final thread I'll add to the, the list in terms of uh, factors that shape China's identity is one that, again, actually has at least two precedents. In the early post-war period, it's not always well known, but you know, it's one of the things I've been doing research on, Chiang Kai-shek's, Chiang, Chiang Kai-shek's China, in the aftermath of 1945, wanted to be a leader of the new post-colonial world, but it was too weak to do that, didn't have the money, and then it collapsed in the Civil War, so that never happened. In the 1960s, Mao had more success in becoming a leader of what became known as the Third World. And in places like Tanzania, Zambia, you know, you can see a predecessor of today's Belt Road Initiative with the uh, uh, infrastructure initiatives that, that that were carried out under Mao's China. But today, of course, you might say the third time round, China finally gets to put both the money and the intention through the Belt and Road Initiative into the idea that it is the true leader of the global south in the present day. And we spend a lot of our time rightly thinking about what China wants to do in the West, what it wants to do with America, what it wants to do in Germany or, or Britain. Actually, so much more of the real story is in Africa, in Southeast Asia, in Latin America. And it's that aspect of China's identity It's aspect of itself as that leader of the global self that I think also, along with these other factors of history, philosophy, Marxism and so forth, shapes the way that it thinks about itself in the world. And you can't understand the whole picture, I think, without seeing that all of those things have an influence on the very complex mixture that is China today. Indeed. And it is, of course,
0: these historical Chinese aspirations to leadership going all the way back again to the imperial age and to the much caricatured tributary system, which is a source of anxiety for not just China's neighbors, but every country around the world now touched by expanding Chinese power. So in conclusion, I'd like to draw that together with the, what are often seen as atavistic aspects of World War II remembrance and of contemporary Chinese nationalism. Um, I recently Listen to David Runciman's interview of your Oxford colleague, Margaret Macmillan, on her new book about the origins of war and its persistence as a phenomenon through human history. And of course, towards the end, she discusses your book and contemporary China. I wonder if you see any uh, possibility for return to the militant nationalism in contemporary China that we associate with the early 20th century or perhaps more darkly with more recent experiences such as that of the Balkans in the 1990s?
1: An excellent question there. Uh, I think perhaps one of the most important ones facing the world today, John. I would say that it's important to understand nationalism in a broad sense in China. I think the sense of China rediscovering, say, its own history and using that to work through traumas about itself is something that's natural to many countries. And I think we should not find ourselves, um, you know, too resentful or worried about that aspect of things. You know, if people are looking to the recent past to understand, you know, their own traumas and heal them, that is something that happens in a whole variety of countries that have been rent by civil wars and by other internal traumas. But I think we do need to be spending time working out how we are going to talk to China and engage in a conversation in China in which China is able to accept that the rest of the world does have some uh, significant right to be able to talk to China about what makes the rest of the world uncomfortable. Um, let me give an example of, of, of a parallel that I think is quite effective. Again, I've written about this in the, in the South China Morning Post and I actually talked to some Chinese diplomats about it as well. One of the aspects of China's growing sense of nationalism and strong you know, identity, both at home and abroad, is marked by its seeming inability to have any kind of very nuanced conversation about China's role in the world. China's officials love it when people praise things which should be praised, like China's amazing innovation in technology. Um, or um, its ability to move, you know, move millions of people at home out of uh, out of poverty, uh, or indeed a whole variety of uh, of issues to do with, you know, long term planning on higher education, uh, science, and all these sorts of things. But when we talk about, you know, the things that everyone will bring up, uh, fears over the Hong Kong security law, uh, camps in Xinjiang, um, the arrest of dissidents or um, uh, academics, China tends to shut down and say these are internal matters that are no business of anyone in the outside world. How dare you talk about them? Well, I pointed out that actually China, in a sense, gave the answer to that question a few years ago when it was declared at the, the Party Congress that China was finally moving away from Deng Xiaoping's idea of Pao Yang Hui and hiding and biding its time and instead was going to be a country with global influence. And phrases like community of common destiny are obviously part of that. So the agenda is there. Think about the last power that did that. That was the United States. The United States, after 1945, rose to global power and has portrayed itself as A liberal hegemon. And in many ways, it has been, I think, a great liberal hegemon, but also at home within America, there was at least one huge flaw in that. And that was the appalling treatment of African-American citizens of the U.S. all the way up to the 1960s with racial discrimination built into the legal system. And at that time, plenty of Americans said this is the business of America. The rest of the world has no right to comment on this. And I'm glad to say the rest of the world said nonsense. We will comment on this. You cannot treat your black citizens in this way. One person who felt that was none other than Chairman Mao, who invited Huey P. Newton of the uh, Black Panthers to, to Beijing in the early 1970s. There's some great photographs online if you want to check that out. So the wider point is this, if it is open to China to criticize uh, America, even you know, in the seventies or indeed in the present day, and I see that Chinese embassies around the world were tweeting about George Floyd, the horrific killing of George Floyd earlier this summer and right, rightly so, that's absolutely fine. It is not logical then for China to say, but actually when it comes to our internal business where you know, you don't like what's going on, you're not allowed to talk about that. We can comment on America, but you can't comment on China. Well, obviously that doesn't work. And when I have pointed this out to uh, to many Chinese friends, you know, they, they'll usually point out that yes, it is necessary for China to learn more, to take criticism. So I think that that might be the answer. I don't think we need to fear the idea that China is gaining a strong, confident sense of itself. It's much better to have a confident China than a paranoid and resentful China that may be actually much more harmful in many ways. But we do need to have a China that is able to have a sensible conversation about itself with the rest of the world, as well as about global order. And if we can move on to that, and also firmly and gently, you know, with confidence, but also with a great deal of frankness, talk to China and just keep on talking to China in that way. Eventually, I hope that we will be in a position to make that conversation more productive. Right now, it does appear that on all sides, there's a great deal of confrontation. But one very heartening sign in the last few days was that there were news reports on the Chinese side that um, the back channels for discrete conversation between the US and China, which have been shut down mostly during the Trump administration, are beginning to open up again in some cases. And I hope that's a sign that a Biden administration in the US will take account of what is acceptable and indeed to be welcomed on the Chinese side in terms of its own identity and will keep up those conversations but also stick very firmly to values you know particularly to do with uh, human rights and uh, with um, uh, individual civil liberties that of course China itself signed up to back in 1948 when it co-authored the Universal Declaration of Human Rights with the great philosopher P.H. Zhang um, uh, as, as, as a co-author and in that sense bringing us in a circle at the end of the conversation because as we've been saying that post 1945 to 49 period is one that today's communist china now embraces as part of its own history and logically that means that 1948 and the universal declaration is also part of that history. So if China was there signing the 1945 UN Charter, that's fantastic. It was also there signing the 1948 Universal Declaration, that's also fantastic. Let's remember all of Chinese history, not just the parts that are convenient to one side or the other, and we'll have a much more productive conversation between the two sides.
0: Well, I think today, Professor Mitter, you have illustrated for us precisely why having a long-term view and a nuanced understanding of Chinese history is important to understanding where contemporary politics are going. Thank you very much for your time. Joining us today, Rana Mitter, Professor of the History and Politics of Modern China at Oxford University. Professor Mitter's book, China's Good War, is published by Belknap Press of Harvard University Press, and links to his op-eds that we referred to during the podcast will be published on the page for this podcast on the website of the Makato Institute for China Studies. I'm John Lee, Senior Analyst at Merix. You have been listening to Merix Experts, the podcast from the Makato Institute for China Studies in Berlin. If you want to learn more about our work, please visit us at merricks.org.